Buonasera, hello, aloha. Spero che tu sia i perdizio perché è l'episodio 37. I hope you're in heaven because it's episode 37. Episode 37 of The Way It Is, the official Bobby Galinsky podcast. To all of our new listeners in Italy, growing quickly. Could it be my shocking Italian that I've been learning for a year and a half? It must be. I think people just like to hear things in their native language. Grazie mia. Anyway, this is it. Episode 37. You're in heaven. It's December, the 4th of December, 2020, in the run-up to Hanukkah. Christmas, Festivus, Kwanzaa, the New Year's. Can you believe this year is gone? You know, where did this year go? Let me tell you, away. That's where this year went. And I know a lot of people are saying, fuck 2020, I'm glad it's gone. But, and I can see that, um, I think every year is a year to be grateful for. Better to be alive and complaining than dead and not complaining. Because people say life is short. I don't think life is short. I think death is just way, way too long. Way too long. That's why life appears ostensibly short. But it's been a lovely week. A little bit of freedom, a lot of freedom here in Melbourne. We can do just about anything. Still have to wear a mask from time to time inside, although not when dining. A little bit like having to wear your seatbelt when you're not in the car. But we've been down this road before. We've been down this road before. And uh, we have, as I like to say, and I know a lot of other people on other podcasts say, but I coined it first, a fully loaded show. And speaking of other podcasts, I did suffer through listening to the majority of the podcasts that won awards last week and Listener's Choice Awards and stuff like that. I thank you all for voting for me. So many of you that voted, thousands of you, maybe hundreds, and we didn't take home the crown, but you can feel safe in knowing that the majority of the other podcasts that won sucked horribly. You thought I was going to say really were deserving. No, well, they didn't. They were absolutely lame. I think there's some politics involved here. I always think there's politics involved because there always is. But uh, we won't be talking much about politics this week because they're still counting the ballots. The election's still not official in the U.S. So we'll just kind of put a hold on that. But we've got a massively fully, fully loaded show and um, a lot going on, a lot going on. I know a lot of you could feel, ooh, weird week. Well, we had that lunar eclipse and we're moving towards a solar eclipse in two weeks. And then Saturn moves into Aquarius. We'll be free of the shackles of Capricorn and Saturn. And more importantly, for those of you in the know, Mars is now in hyper-acceleration mode. So just think enmity exposed and escalating. And by enmity, I am talking more geopolitically than in your personal life, as Mystic Medusa would warn us. But in either case, self-composure and calm are paramount. Think about that. And speaking of calm, one of the things that I really 
kind of kind of mused about on uh, the morning walk the other day with uh, the spouse was how wonderful and quiet and calm it was during lockdown here. I have to say, there weren't a lot of things I loved about lockdown, but the quiet and the calm was beautiful. There'd be just nobody anywhere and no cars going up and down the street, no sounds, and you know, just hear the birds and the bees and the uh, crocodiles and the uh, bilbies and the possums and the uh, brown snakes slithering through the grass. But uh, no, it was just nice and calm. And now all the traffic's back and it's loud again. And one thing that I have found, one thing that I found, I don't know what your experience is around the world to our friends in Italy, to a lot of our listeners in the, the UK, and of course, some um, big fans in LA where you are locked down by your governor, faux governor, hack governor, is um, how did all of you forget how to fucking drive? I have noticed since lockdown ended here and traffic has resumed, the infrastructure is functioning and full, that everyone forgot how to drive in lockdown. They say, you know, it's like a you know, like getting back on a horse or a bicycle, you know, you don't forget. Well, let me tell you, about 6 million people here in Victoria forgot because the traffic and the way people drive or lack thereof, no signals, no no indicators, nothing is absolutely shocking. So like in the space of weeks, it's gone from absolutely primordial quiet outside to now traffic everywhere. And yes, traffic's everywhere because in the space of the one week that we were reopened first, there were three, count them, three major accidents on the York Street Bridge in South Melbourne. That's the bridge underpass that a truck would get stuck under all the time. And they've even put all these bollards and all these hanging things and stuff like that for years now. That's a warning, low bridge, warning, Underpass, warning, overpass halls, and still you know, it's fully, I, I won't say retarded because I'm not supposed to say that, fully, you know, extra chromosome missing something, truck drivers just get stuck in there. And then, of course, they, they block everything. They, they should be executed. They should be executed. So the traffic like that, this makes me just want to have a handgun. Not that I would ever use one here, but, you know, just get you angry. And funny that, we have no handguns because John Howard, the prime minister, some years ago, many years, took them all away. We had a, if you're from Australia, you know this, if you're from, you know, Italy, Russia, the U.S., you know, Romania, whatever, you don't know this, but all of our handguns were voluntarily handed in in a handgun buyback. So that got rid of all the guns from the good guys because the bad guys always hung on to them. So case somebody wants to do a home invasion now or the government goes crazy and wants to really lock you down and come in and drag you out of your house we we have no self-defense um but unrelated to that but ham-handedly segwaying because there's a point to every story is that it was an interesting time because it's one of the few times a prime minister here was universally liked in the country because he was pretty much a a right-wing conservative Prime Minister John Howard, 
and he put an olive branch out to the to the left to the labor party and to the greens uh, the party of the criminally insane with this gun buyback because because uh, in april of 1996 um a young chap named martin bryant um completely lost his shit and um i think he'd lost it a lot earlier and killed 35 people and injured 23 others over in tasmania and if you're not familiar with australia that's the little island not so little island south of Victoria at the bottom of the country. It's where the Tassie Devils are from. And anyway, murdered 35 people, injured 23 others in what was known as the Port Arthur Massacre. It was a tourist attraction at an, at an old prison. It's a tourist attraction now, but for a lot different reasons. Anyway, so that, that prompted the, uh, the gun buyback. However, here's the interesting part. Just this week, it was announced that director Justin Kurtzel is doing a film on Martin Bryant uh, with his writing partner, Sean Grant. Now, Justin Kurtzel um, did an amazing film, debut film called Snowtown some years ago about a group of South Australian absolute, you know, non-psychopath, you know, fuckwits. There's just no way to describe them nicely, who murdered pensioners systematically for their pension checks and then disposed of their bodies in barrels of acid in the Commonwealth Bank of Australia in Snowtown, South Australia. This, um, you think, wow, who would do this? Well, in the U.S., we have places like Ohio and Utah and England. You've got, um, you've got Stoke. No, I don't know. Maybe you've got the uh, Slough Paper Factory. But no, South Australia is where all the serial killers come from. And he did a film about it that was stunning and shocking. And uh, then he did a follow-up film that not a lot of people saw, his version of Macbeth, which was very atmospheric. And then he did a really good um, show for Stan, the streamer here in Australia, that um, output in... um, Showtime in the U.S. called The True History of the Kelly Gang, about Ned Kelly, adapted from the extremely boring, overly flowery, completely overrated novel by Peter Carey. Now, Peter Carey is the darling of the literati in Australia, a man Booker Prize winner. Um, I find most of his stuff absolutely turgid. However, it was great source material because Sean Grant put together a fantastic screenplay and Justin's film, which I don't think anybody saw, um, is really, really good. Amazing small role from Russell Crowe and Charlie Hunnam. And um, it's quite riveting and just a completely new look on it. And there's been a lot of versions of Ned Kelly films from the um, Mick Jagger to the uh, Gregor Jordan version. The uh, I think um, um, Philippe Moira did... Um, Something similar, Mad Dog Morgan. Anyway, this film was great. So right now, everyone is up in arms, pun intended, because they're doing a film on Martin Bryant. And woke Twitter has gone off its gourd about this. As Jackie Keast reports in Independent Film, Caleb Landry-Jones, Judy Davis, Essie Davis, and Anthony LaPaglia, the other LaPaglia, will star in Justin Kurtzel's Nitrum. What's Nitrum? That's Martin backwards, as in Martin Bryant, the the culprit. Horrible title. Please change that. It it, it will turn people off. People go, oh, Nitrum. What's that? Uh, Martin backwards. What's Martin? Oh, Martin Bryant. Oh, yeah, the Tassie killer. When you have to explain this 
to someone in a tertiary or, um, you know, other manner, how a title works, what it's about. Amazing turnoff. Rename that. I would call it Tasmanian Devil. You can have that now. A feature film about Martin Bryant, the Port Arthur gunman who murdered 35 people. Now, Good Thing Productions' Nick Batsius, who is a top guy in Virginia Whitwell, are producing with Mad Men Entertainment handling theatrical. And they're shooting in Geelong, which is a quaint little town on the other side of the bay here. Now, we were the first ones to flag shooting in Geelong with a big feature that never got off the ground many, many years ago. And now finally, they're realizing it's a good place to shoot. Yes, we thought of it first. Not bitter, just Nostradamic. But uh, they tried to shoot in Tasmania, and um, Tasmania didn't have a bar of that. In fact, um, truth be told, among the biggest critics of the film is Tasmanian Labor Party member, uh, that says it all, Rebecca White, who wrote on Facebook, Enough has been said and written about the tragedy at Port Arthur. It should not be dramatized or reduced to entertainment. It is a sensitive and traumatic history and a human tragedy that is still being lived by the Tasmanian community. Well, it is sensitive, it is traumatic, and it is a human tragedy. No different than 9-11 was, where almost 4,000 people were killed. And there was almost no outcry when the now six films that have come out in various forms about 9-11 and offshoots of 9-11, about the survivors, the uh, people murdered, and um, uh, family member, extended family, families, um, have objected to. There was a few objections, but and I have plowed through so many interviews because I was quite fascinated by it. 99% of the people who were involved with 9-11 lost someone, lost a partner, lost a son, lost a father, um, you know, a brother, fire, new firefighters, friends, and so many people were touched by that. Um, thought it was, the films were amazing memories or homages. I know there were some that didn't think that, but here's, here's the deal in my opinion, and that's why the show is called The Way It Is. If you, if you were one of the survivors from Port Arthur or knew someone or, you know, I had a family member lost, whatever like that. Yes, horrible day for you. Horrible day. But that doesn't take it away from the mainstream that this was an event that changed history and deserves to be recorded and immortalized. And while there seems to be some disagreement about how the film will play out, it looks like it will mostly or entirely cover the events leading up to the day of the massacre. The... Um, the disintegration of Martin Bryant. That's, um, that's what interests me. That's what interests me. And regardless of that, or how it will be released in various territories, you know, if you don't want to see the film for whatever reasons, don't go see it. But don't deny the people that are creating a dream and want to memorialize it and also employ hundreds or thousands of people from making such a subject. Now, normally I would have put this in the entertainment section, but it just kind of segued in from my desire to have a handgun when there's a lot of traffic. But let's go back in history for another reason. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for man. Died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. My firm belief that the only thing
Today in History. We do this every week, and if you're new to the podcast, it's always interesting to know in the space-time continuum what similar events happened on this day in the past, just as they will happen in the future long after we, well, you, are gone. Well, on this day in the year 1110, a huge, huge city on uh, my iPad, the Syrian harbor city of Saida Sidon surrendered to the Crusaders. Only 40 years later, in 1154, Adrian IV was elected Pope. Now, why is that important? Because he was the only Englishman ever to become pontiff. Nicholas Breakspeare was a member of the family which, until recent years, brewed beer in Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire. So, you might have said back in 1154, ah, fucking Pope. Pope seems drunk. Might have been. Might have been. In 1259, very important, the Treaty of Paris, English King Henry III and French King Louis IX ended 100 years of conflict, 100 years between the Capetian and the Plantagenet dynasties. Hmm, well, and it seems to have lasted. It seems to have lasted. In 1534, Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent occupied Baghdad. You notice how there's always been war in the Mideast forever, plus a month? Now, let's go to the Middle Ages. 1655, Middle Ages, Middleburg, Netherlands, forbids the building of synagogues. Well, why not? They're just full of Jews anyway. Just a bunch of problems. Let's just beat up on the Jews. In 1680, a hen in Rome laid an egg. Not just any egg, an egg imprinted with a comet that was not seen until December 16th. Now, I have a couple of issues with this. One, was it really a comet? Did this hen in a Nostradamus-like egg-laying scenario portend this comet that was, was coming 12 days later? Or is it like the piece of toast where people see Jesus on the toast? I saw Jesus on the toast! Was it something that somebody thought, hmm, that's an odd egg, and then a couple of weeks later, there's a comet? Uh, oh, Giuseppe, what does that comet look like to you? Oh, it looks strangely like like the thing that was on that egg that we had in the souffle 12 days ago. Oh, that must be a portentable egg of Satan. 1812. I don't care about the War of 1812. You know what I care about? Peter Gaillard of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He patented a horse-drawn mower. I think he had the right idea. I th the, the mower, great idea. Horse-drawn, I really think he needed to lift his game a bit. But in 1829, Britain outlaws the Sutte. The Sutte, spelled S-U-T-T-E-E -E in India, is when the widow burns herself to death on her husband's funeral pyre. I don't know why Britain would outlaw that. What's wrong with the widow burning herself to death on her husband's funeral pyre? The, the, the wife is so lost in grief. I mean, I'm really not going to go much further on this before I have a discussion with my wife, but I, I think it's kind of... I think it's kind of, you know, biblical. And I think it's, um, what, what better way to demonstrate your grief that you can't live with, 
without your husband than burning yourself to death. However, there's something to be, be said about, well, life goes on and the, the wife prospers without the husband. But what's the one thing you see at pretty much the end of every obituary? Survived by his wife. Survived by his wife. They always outlive us. They always outlive us. Which isn't quite as interesting as in 1864 when Romanian Jews are forbidden to practice law. Well, that was a stupid, stupid thing. Because everyone knows when you're in trouble, you got to go get a good Jew lawyer. Bernie, I'm being sued. Uh, better call Marcus Kopelbaum or, you know, Bert Greenstein. You know, from the law firm of Kopelberg, Greenstein, Schmeck, Putz, and Mlukla. So if, you know, the Jews can't practice law, are they going to get a good lawyer? Well, Tuchescu found that out about a century later. You know, Romanians. Think of, think of anything the Romanians have given to civilization. Okay, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Dracula! Vlad the Impaler. Vlad the Impaler. Okay, Dracula. Very good. Very good. Now, 1881, the first edition of the LA Times was published. I still love the LA Times. One of the few papers that remains relatively centrist in a time when newspapers take sides, you know, um, like the New York Times, the New York Slimes, as it's uh, better known these days. And in 1909, Oldest still operating NHL franchises officially established as J. Ambrose O'Brien and Jack Levoliet create Le Club de Hockey Canadien, today known as the Montreal Canadiens. And in 1915, one of my favorite clubs, the Ku Klux Klan, received its charter from Fulton County, Georgia. And man, did sales of bed sheets and bleach just go through the roof, go through the roof. So, I think I'd like to tell you about music. Did you know on this day in 1927, Dmitry Shostakovich's Second Symphony premiered in Moscow? Did you know that Duke Ellington opened at the Cotton Club in Harlem in 1927? By the way, the only film of Francis Ford Coppola that was an epic fail, Cotton Club. Sorry, his only film that didn't work for me. What about... What about FDR? You know, the old, the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. On this day in 1933, FDR created the Federal Alcohol Control Administration. For a guy that couldn't walk, that was legless, literally, the, the irony of controlling alcohol um, cannot be lost. Now, something that people who have watched The Crown would know, that on this day in 1952, Killer fogs, killer fogs, began in London, England, and the term smog was coined. Smog? Hmm. 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 And for those of you who are fans of art in the art world, in this day in 1961, the Museum of Modern Art hangs Matisse's Les Bateaux upside down for 47 days. And in 1961, the female contraceptive pill becomes available on the NHS in Britain. Too bad that it wasn't used before Jeremy Corbyn's mother got pregnant. But 
we still live in hope. Let's go on some famous birthdays. Because a lot of people wonder, I wonder who was born today. Crazy Horse was born today in 1840. The famous Indian warrior. And speaking of Romania earlier, on this day in 1878, novelist Bram Stoker wed Florence Balcom in Dublin, Ireland. Elizabeth Taylor in 18, in 18, 1876 might be, misprint, 1976, married for the seventh time to politician John Warner. And famous divorces in 2015, Melanie Griffith and Antonio Banderas divorced after 19 years of marriage. Sad, very sad. And that brings us up to the conclusion of today in history. Now, speaking of time travel, as we are wont to, I had a dream. I had a dream. I had a, I have a dream. I had a dream the other night. True. All is true. Everything I always say is true on this podcast. You might think some of it is innuendo or fake news or supposition or opinion. And you could be right, but they are my facts. It is the way it is. And this is true without unshakable evidence. The other night, I had a dream. I fell asleep. I had not been looking at social media. I had not been watching um, late night movies or anything like that. Just went to bed as normal. And uh, talk about time travel. No idea where this, where this came from. I uh, was thinking about photography and dreaming about photography and thinking about some photos that I'd like to uh, edit and things like that. And then it brought me back to working in the dark room, which I, as you know from previous podcasts, loved to do as a kid, and brought me back to my first job, my first real job, which was when I was 14 years old in 1967 in Sioux City, Iowa. Now, I did have a couple micro jobs before that, when I was saving money for comic books when I was about nine or 10 years old, because uh, I loved comic books. And the back of the comic books, the American Seed Company used to have a bit, a bit of a scam. I think it was like a multi-level marketing thing, like a pyramid deal, where you bought seeds for like, you know, five cents a packet, a little sachet. And then you sold the seeds for 15 cents. And you'd send the money to the company and then they would post you out the seeds and they would, um, you know, you'd have your commission, you'd have your profit and you'd have your, your seeds delivered to your customer. Now in Sioux city in, you know, the late fifties, early sixties, this seemed like, you know, a bonus. The, I lived on Valley drive and the whole neighborhood was awash with flowers and there was always people outside planting and stuff like that. So I knew everyone on Valley Drive and Sunset Circle and Blackstone and Ridgeview and Summit. And, you know, oh, I knew everybody there. So with the guidance of my late mom, I went door to door with this little form selling seeds. And I thought it would be a breeze. It was fucking hard. A lot of people said, oh, I've already planted for the year. I get my seeds at, you know, bomb guards or, you know, wherever. And uh, a couple of nice people, the Kutchers, um, Ruthie Kutcher bought seeds, Dr. Dimsdale, 
bought seeds. I remember that. The Kalins. The Kalins did not buy seeds. Bruce, your folks did not buy seeds. Okay? I remember this. And I really, I'm still angry about it. They had a lovely garden and they did not buy seeds. Don't know what it was. Could be anti-Semitism. But um, being Jewish, I don't think that. Uh, it would have been Jew on Jew crime back then. But uh, I did get some seeds and I did make a little bit of money and I got some comics. But I found this was a bit hard. I didn't want to do a paper route. My brother, Andy, had a paper route. And that was very weather dependent. That was definitely not me. And my dad did want me to work at the Sioux City Foundry at the time, which was severe manual labor. I, I would always see people with, you know, missing fingers or, you know, smashed feet. And, you know, I, there was just, I just didn't think factory work was going to be my, my forte at age, um, you know, 10, 12, 13. So I did work in the office part-time at the foundry summers. I'd work at the office, but didn't like working for my dad. It was just um, too much to work for him and then come home and, and live with him. So uh, I stepped out on my own. And because I was a absolute photography maniac, a photo freak, and I was always buying camera equipment and um, darkroom equipment, supplies and film and chemicals and stuff from Sportsman's Camera, which I believe was at 413 Nebraska Street, downtown Sioux City, I thought, why not? Work at a place you love. I had I had the early initiative, justification, and I had the mindset, even back then, even back then in 1967, when I was 14, that why not work where you love? I, I really had the uh, the career planning at, at that age. Um, who wants to have a shit job, so to speak? So I sat down and uh, worked it out, and I knew I needed to have a work permit at that point, because I was only 14. So I got on my bike, my shiny, sparkling green Schwinn Stingray purchased at Albright Cycle Shop uh, with the banana seat. And I uh, drove downtown on my own, unbeknownst to my mom, who didn't ever want me to go that far on the bike, and uh, parked the bike, went in, and spoke to the manager of the camera department, who I think from memory was like a fellow named Tom Lally. Um, who I just remember had these, dark, you know, dark, big rim glasses on and, uh, you know, looked like a camera expert. I always uh, got along well with him and, you know, said, do you, um, do you uh, think you might ever want any help here, you know, part-time? And uh, he said, yeah. And I said, would you ever maybe want me after school or on weekends? He goes, oh, yeah, that'd be great. He says, why don't you go talk to Bob? And... Uh, Bob was Bob Rogers, who owned Sportsman's, a, a company which just hit 75 years uh, a few months ago. 75 years. I think it was one of the older retailers in Sioux City, Iowa, along with uh, Thorpe and Company, an old schoolmate of mine, Rusty Thorpe. Hi there, Rusty. Anyway, went up the stairs to the office and spoke to uh, Bob, and uh, he said, yep, I don't remember what I got. I don't remember how much... He paid me. There's more to this story. I actually never got a paycheck. <laughs> and there's a reason why. Um, because I bought so much stuff um, with my employee discount that I ended up always owing them every week. But that's neither here nor there. And there was a lovely lady named Marianne up in the office there. And thanks to this information, I couldn't remember Marianne's name from 
Deb Rogers and Bobby Rogers, who has just recently retired. More to this story. This was the other night, other night, the stream. So anyway, um, I remembered my first job there. I got the job and then uh, I would go after school. I was at Herbert Hoover Junior High School and then Central High School a couple years later. And rigorously, I would go down after school and on weekends. And it was fantastic. And in summer, when there was no school, I loved it. I was assistant manager, which only meant that I was the only other person there in the department other than the manager. So I was assistant manager by default. And it was a dream job, just selling camera equipment and film and processing and stuff and helping people with the selection. And I knew a lot about cameras. I think I knew more than most. And I can, in my dream, I was working that night, the 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 other night in, in my dream. I can still remember walking in with the counter on the right. And you walked about 50 feet and you made a right at the till, the cash register. Then you made another right back there, the back drawers where they kept the photo processing up above it, where they kept the uh, photo processing chemicals, um, the photos that were in the drawer that went off to the color printer and came back. I know every part of that case by heart. And I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't thought of it in over 50 years, but I was like right there. When you time travel, when you dream, it is no different than being back there in real because it is real because all memories are, are imprints of things that already happened. And we spoke about this and how memories are made through your prefrontal cortex in a previous issue of Science Bitches about three or four podcasts ago. So anyway, I remember always going up and down the stairs and checking how much money I'd made and how much I'd spent and then realizing by the Thursday when checks were coming out on the weekend that I wasn't going to get a paycheck. In fact, the late Bob Rogers, who I believe just passed away a couple of months ago, um, rest in peace, uh, actually called my dad once. They were similar age. He was about 10 years younger than my dad and said, you know, Bobby's been working here a long time. And I don't think he's ever had a paycheck. I don't think this is really working out for him, but it worked out fine for me because I got great equipment at a discount and I loved it. There used to be a fellow named Paul Schaffhausen that came in all the time and he was a Leica fanatic. And I tried, tried and tried to convert him to Nikons because I was a Nikon fanatic and Nikkor lenses. And uh, being on the yearbook at the Central High School Little Maroons, the Maroon and White, the yearbook, being um, photographer and um, one of the staff had to have the best equipment. And I did have the best equipment and really took it seriously. But that's really not the point of the story. I was there and talking to Bert, who was um, head of the angling, the fishing and hunting department, who was, you always hear this click, 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 because it's always him using his lighter, smoking about 70 cigarettes a day, as everyone was wont to do back then. But what amazed me is I had the dream, and I was right back there working, and it was one of the best days. And then, lo and behold, two days later, I just happened to scroll through Facebook, and in my feed comes up Bobby Rogers, the son of the owner, um, fell a little bit younger than me, who had taken over the business, and it said, going out of business, closing, retiring. And 
I had not had any input. I had not seen this on Facebook. I had not had any other thoughts related to it. And I just love the beauty of serendipity of how thoughts go through the universe. Just like a song. You can be thinking of a song and someone you care about is thinking of that same song at the same time. Or when you look at your wife or husband or sister or father or son or daughter or nephew or niece or grandson or best friend and the phone rings and you were thinking of them and they were thinking of you, how that vibe, all this amazing business that had been around 75 years that was integral, integral in my life, teaching me sales skills and management skills and photography skills and visualization skills that um, was so important, and there we are, boom, and it's closing down this 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 same week. And um, thanks to Bobby Rogers and Deb and Mary Beth for uh, some fill-in when I contacted them after I uh, saw the post. Ironically, that uh, their dad um, had passed just recently, back in October, but um, and his dad, their grandfather, Honey, was my nemesis at work because. I am lazy, as many of you know, uh, and when I didn't have a customer, when I didn't have anything to do, I always like to sit and look through photos. There was no internet back then. I would just look through photo books and Nikon catalogs and things and dream about what I could save for one day. But man, there was never a spare moment allowed at Sportsman's when Honey was in the house, um, the grandfather, and um, he would find you and he'd just kind of motion with his finger and invariably, oh my God, there you're going back into the darkness, back into the back of the store where he would find something for you to organize or a box, box, box. I just remember hearing box, to move boxes and catalogs and things. So it always was neat and organized. And you just, you just never know where some of your skills come from. I do remember working there at Christmas and um, I learned, uh, I learned patience because people would buy all their Christmas gifts. And uh, even though I was the camera department person, you had to chip in and help um, with everything. And what I hated most was gift wrapping. Because at Christmas, somebody would come in and they would buy a basketball. And it wouldn't come in a box. They didn't have them in boxes back then. Um, packaging wasn't quite so sophisticated. It was just the basketball. And they'd bring it up to the counter and go, can you gift wrap this? Uh, and I don't want I don't want my son to know what it is. So make make it not look like a basketball. Fuck, God, Jesus. <laughs> you know, so you'd have to go find you know the most gigantor box ever and put the ball in, and then you know use tons of gift wrap and paper and stuff like that. And then you you know get called out a bit for using too much gift wrap and go. Well, the customer didn't want it to look like a basketball. And, and I would glower at them. I'd glower at that customer just to let them know. I tried to be cheerful, but I learned how to glower. Uh, the, a good glower will straighten people out. It's like subtext in a script. You don't really have to uh, spell it out. You just show it. You don't tell. That's a screenwriting mantra. Show, don't tell. Glower, don't yell. And... Um, one day, one of the greatest stories ever, passed, passed this story on. I hope they did. But one Christmas, um, standing there with Bert and um, Tom and everybody like that, and a couple of guys come, uh, come in wearing um, uniforms like they're, like they're official. 
they look they looked official or something like they were they looked like they were just you know a team and uh, they were in the back and they were looking at canoes and stuff like that and then about a half an hour later they um they come walking out and they've got this canoe pretty expensive canoe and and you got to realize it's the middle of winter and you know it's like 40 below zero and wind and snow and everything like that and these guys are checking out canoes um which you know you can get a good price on at Christmas in Iowa and uh, one on each end. And they kind of motion to open the door for them. And Bert opens up the door and I hold the door and they, they go walking out and say, thanks, Merry Christmas. Then a couple minutes later, Bob Rogers comes down from upstairs and go, which one of you sold the canoe? Nobody sold the canoe. Nobody sold the canoe. They came out with authority and um, gave us the look to open the door. And, you know, it was the nod. It was the great nod that uh, they had bought this and they were on their way out. And who's going to stop and go, oh, can I see a receipt for that? Are you walking out with a canoe? Anyway, uh, these guys, that was my first experience with with grand theft and uh, a, a bit of a scam and a bit of the make and the bluff. And uh, they got away with it. Now, I don't know the uh, the end game of that. Did they ever get caught? Were they ever arrested? Whatever. But it was a pretty epic Christmas story. A Christmas story at Sportsman's. Um, not a happy one, but an interesting one. And uh, other than that, my, uh, my, my memory was then my dream was then waiting for lunch. Because I was a bit overweight, as you know. I was a lot overweight. And I love lunch. And so if I was working weekends or in the summer there, one of the highlights also was noon, right on the stroke of noon. The dot of noon, I would be out the door and up to the mall to the uh, 4th Street um, Cafe for um, a double cheeseburger and fries and a large malted, oh my God, I can still taste it, in my 30-minute time allotment for lunch and then back to work. There's a lot of calories in a double cheeseburger and large fries and a malted milk when you're a little kid. I never put the two together. But uh, then I woke up, woke up from the dream, and I was hungry and thinking of malteds and hamburgers. And my mouth is just watery now as I'm telling this story. So anyway, one last thing about this that's important and all ties together is I think it's really important that your first job is your career path, something that really really gets you happy and that you have respect and teaches responsibility. I know people that worked at McDonald's and people scoffed at it. No way. McDonald's, you know, you learn organization and skills and big company. You learn how to count, make change, look people in the eyes, say that, you know, McDonald's is great. There's no job that's a bad job if it, if you learn something from it. I learned great skills of sales and um, people and, and everything there. And, and most importantly, knowing that I was the employee and not the employer. It really bothered me the other day when I heard a story that Jordan Peterson, the fantastic Canadian author and uh, psychologist who wrote that amazing book, 12 Rules for Living, and also who's extremely politically incorrect and will not refer to people as their preferred pronoun. It's either he or she, the way it should be. If you want to be referred by a proton, a proton, 
If you want to be referred to as a proton, you know, get into the Hadron Collider. If you want to be referred to as your preferred pronoun, look in the mirror and um, talk to yourself. But he's got a new book coming out, More Rules for Living. And his publisher, Penguin, a pretty major publisher, had 70 anonymous complaints from employees that were crying because they were upset because that they felt the book was insulting to them and wouldn't wouldn't be a safe space for them to work at Penguin for the publisher. That's paying them to work there and giving them an opportunity because they didn't like the content of the book. Like students barring speakers at universities. That's what happens when people don't learn responsibility, don't have jobs, live in mom's basement, eat s'mores, study too much socialism and Marxism, and think that they know it all. It's all connected in that same space-time continuum. And that would have been the equivalent of me while I was an employee at Sportsman's when um, someone wanted some Leica products going, oh my God, you know, you're making me cry. It's not a safe space because Leica is German and the Germans killed all the Jews, six million Jews and some of my relatives. And every time you buy a camera, it's killing a Jew. I mean, that's that's like the equivalent of that's insanity. However, a bit of irony. Um, remember, a few podcasts ago, a member of the Leica family actually did save hundreds and hundreds of Jews by getting them out before Hitler got them. So worth revisiting that episode. And even more irony, I have let go of all the Nikons after all these years, and the epilogue to the story is that I'm a Leica man. Paul Schaffhausen had seen the future. Now, thank you for bearing with me with that story. It was just so powerful to have that dream. And then a few days later to see that post on, on Facebook. And it's, it's the connectivity. It is the connectivity of everyone in the universe. And uh, I really believe in that exercise of, of planning your time machine, of sitting and thinking of a group of people that inspire you as you go back in time or forward in time uh, as an exercise. It's a bit of a meditation, if you will. That exercise called the dinner party is something that I talk about a lot about in earlier podcasts too. Again, also worth revisiting. But speaking of science, you know what's coming. You can hear it. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. up and it's science bitches science bitches yes it's time for another riveting episode of science bitches and this week as reported by rachel bunyan from mail online a mysterious arthur c clark style monolith appears in romania romania that's what we've been talking about a lot they won't build synagogues there in the middle ages and Bram Stoker knows that the only good thing that came out of Romania was Dracula before Ceausescu. But anyway, this mysterious monolith appeared in Romania after unexplained metal vanished from Utah. So who or what? 
put it there. This mysterious metal monolith appeared in Romania the same week after the similar structure was found in the remote Utah desert was removed by an unknown party. The shiny triangular pillar, and the photo was in the show notes, was found on Batka Doimani Hill in the city of Piatra Nemt in northern Romania last Thursday. It was spotted a few meters away from the well-known archaeological landmark, the Petrodava Dacian Fortress, a fort built by the ancient Dacian people between 82 BC and AD 106. The peculiar find comes after a similar monolith was found in the Utah desert. No explanation. Sparking wry speculation that it could have been the work of aliens, but is more likely the work of a prankster inspired by the science fiction novel 2001, A Space Odyssey. I think otherwise. The tool in 2001 is a monolith used by an alien race to investigate worlds across the galaxy and to encourage the development of intelligent life. Well, intelligent life, it wouldn't be either in Utah or Romania. But in the book, great apes use their tools to kill animals to eat meat, to end their starvation, and to kill a predatory leopard. In Utah, the pillar, which protruded approximately 12 feet from the Red Rocks in southern Utah, was spotted last Wednesday by baffled local Bureau of Land Management officials who were counting bighorn sheep from a helicopter, as you do, as you do. However, in Romania, the triangular structure has a height of about 13 feet and one side faces Mount Sialu, known locally as the Holy Mountain. News of discovery in Utah quickly went viral online with many noting the object's similarity to the strange alien monoliths that trigger huge leaps in human progress in Kubrick's classic sci-fi film 2001 A Space Odyssey. Romanian officials still do not know who's responsible for erecting their mysterious monolith. Named culture and heritage official Roxana Josanu said, We have started looking into the strange appearance of the monolith. It is on private property, but we still do not know who the monolith owner is yet. It is in a protected area on an archaeological site, and it must be approved by the Ministry of Culture. The Ministry of Culture. Ministry of Romanian Culture. <laughs> yeah, who runs that? Someone who works at a drive through yogurt shop. And what do you do during the day? I work at the Ministry of Culture. Nevertheless, nevertheless, across the globe, UFO spotters and conspiracy theorists have become obsessed, as I have, with the shiny triangular pillar. Well, though the structure was only discovered by authorities this month, Google Earth images show it had been standing since at least 2015 or 2016. Hmm, interesting. I want to believe, I want to believe, and although there's been a history of prank construction in both Romania and Utah, I think there's a more otherworldly explanation, which we will chase and cover over many episodes until we find it out as we continue on after science. 
bitches for this week. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Yes, it's time once again for What Your Podcaster Is Wearing. And as we have escaped from the woo flu here in Australia, I've caught a new type of woo flu, and that's Brian and Vincent Woo. No pun intended. Hope they don't mind, because they're twin brothers. And in 2002, they established Inku. I-N-C-U. Inku involved, as many great things do, from a set of simple but steadfast ideas. These guys, these twins, inspired by their love of travel, international designers, and emerging Australian brands, the brothers set about fusing these into a retail concept that would be at once innovative, personable, and unique. Now, 15 years later, Inku, which you might not know about overseas, but you will, has flourished into a multifaceted fashion and lifestyle business operating across retail, wholesale, production, and logistics, supported by a diverse and united community of customers, staff, and brand partners. These guys work with a cohesive end-to-end business model, which is unique to the Australian market. And that's not hype. That's fact. In 2014, they they began to expand their international reach and announced retail partnerships with French label APC, fantastic, two New York-based labels, Saturday in New York City and Rag and & Bone, the Rag & Bone store in Soho, one of our favorites in, in uh, New York. Um, maybe not Soho right now, which is still on fire from the election, but in general. And across the three brands, a total of seven Australian first stores opened up throughout Sydney and Melbourne. Now... They've gone into private labeling, and there's actually some clothes under the InQ label, which I'm wearing a couple of uh, cool, relaxing pieces, as is my wife today, which um, you might just find in the show notes. These guys are superstars, and uh, they are on the rise. They've really found an amazing niche here, and uh, their store at uh, Chadston, uh, two stores at Chadston, the men's and women's, right across from each other, is some genius marketing with some genius products. Go bros. So ready yourselves. On your marks, get set. Bake. 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 Well, 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 we're back baking. Everyone says, God, you haven't baked anything in weeks. What's that podcaster been doing? Well, baker, baker, baker man, bake me a cake as fast as you can. And boy, did we have some delicious cake on Saturday. Delicious. What did we make? What did we make? We made reservations with relatives for a granddaughter's third birthday party. And her mom had picked up a cake from Spotswood. You've probably never heard of Spotswood. No one's actually ever heard of Spotswood, but it's a suburb in Melbourne, um, the eponymous uh, suburb of the 1991 Mark Joffe film Spotswood, in which Ben Mendelsohn plays an efficiency expert in a moccasin factory. Don't worry, you'll never see it. But um, it had merit at the time, allegedly. Um, 
I haven't seen it. I've only read the Wikipedia review. It just, I couldn't get past the uh, notes. But anyway, not on the Spotswood, but off the Spotswood, this cake is a birthday cake from a bunch of cakes by Miss Emily. So um, when I asked my stepdaughter, where did this cake come from? That's where she said it came from. And I got to tell you, this was one smoking hot unicorn birthday cake. And I'm going to be popping over there um, maybe on my birthday if I don't bake something myself and, and get a cake. It was lethal. So shout out to them. And what has your podcaster been drinking? Well, we saw a Black Friday email for Oyster Bay Sauv Blanc, a beautiful Beautiful New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that runs about 15 to 20 bucks normally. And um, it was $12.99 a bottle. So we just Black Friday, Cyber Monday, right into that. And uh, just been drinking that all week. Uh, morning, noon, and night. to the movies. No, no binging TV shows. No more 8, 10, 12, 19 part dramas to talk to you about. Today, it's movie week. And it's really the tale of two cities, the tale of two movies and two directors. Um, talking a bit about Mank from David Fincher and Hillbilly Elegy from Ron Howard, two top directors, both at the top of their game, and um, with a slew of amazing films behind them. If we'll talk about David Fincher first, when you, you think of his body of work, Alien 3, 7, one of my five favorite films of all time, The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, hugely overlooked, The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, and now Mank. David Fincher is one of my favorite directors of all time. And in his new immersive Hollywood drama, Gary Oldman, one of the finest actors of our time, is delectably droll as the screenwriter of, Cinema, of Citizen Kane, as told by Owen Gleiberman in Variety, in Fincher's bracing look at the creation of Kane, which is a time machine trip to the Hollywood of the 30s. In Mank... David Fincher's raptly intricate and enticing movie about Herman J. Mankiewicz, the fabled screenwriter of 30s and 40s Hollywood, and how he wrote the script for Citizen Kane. The act of creation is just one of the many things that flow by. That's part of what gives the movie its uniquely atmospheric and mostly tumultuous tone of you-are-right-fucking-there authenticity. Mank is a tale of old Hollywood that's more steeped in old Hollywood. It's glamour and sleaze, it's layer-cake hierarchies, it's corruption and glory than pretty much just about any movie you've seen, ever. And the effect is to lend it a dizzying time machine splendor. Mank is at North Verde Ranch, because Orson Welles, played by Tom Burke, the 24-year-old wonderkin director of Citizen Kane, brought in by RKO Pictures and given carte blanche to make any film he wants, has arranged for him to be there. Welles 
has personally sought out the brilliant but damaged Mank. He wants the first draft of a screenplay in 90 days. Let me tell you, as a screenwriter for many years, that's short order. That is a rush job. So Mank sets to work, scrawling out the words himself or dictating them to Rita Alexander, played by Lily Collins, who's also the star of Emily in Paris, the pert British stenographer and handholder who's been assigned to him. For a while, the movie uses script cues as titles like Exterior, Paramount Studios, Day, 1930, Flashback. And it's a device that indicates Mank is going to hop around its main character as playfully as Citizen King did, and it will tell his story by telling the story that surrounds him. This this movie just stuns me. I'd seen a uh, bit of a preview and then went with the solicitor to the stars again today to see it on the big screen. And uh, although it'll be on Netflix in about a week, uh, it might be on Netflix in your territory now, it's really something to see. And just this glittering black and white on the big screen, it... Um, it just takes you back to the most amazing time. And um, as a screenwriter, it means a lot to me because I really identify with Gary Oldman. Alcoholic screenwriter. No, screenwriter. Would be alcoholic. No, not really. Just kidding. But uh, every writer enjoys a drink. There are no writers that do not enjoy a drink. Um, Stephen King stopped drinking. And look what happened to him. He got hit by a white van. Served him right. Um... <laughs> more or less. But um, he did, and he did. That's a true story. He did stop drinking, and he did get hit by a white van walking sober by the side of his road in Bangor, Maine. And the driver has never been found. And in fact, there's a huge, huge undercurrent of Stephen King fans who have been searching for that driver for years, wanting revenge. But back to Mank. Mank is a film about Hollywood, and you know how Hollywood is so incestuous that it loves anything about itself and its family. So this is going to be a shoe-in at Academy Awards time for film director, certainly Gary Oldman um, as actor. And it's, it's just astonishing. I don't know what it's like for the average Joe or the average Joanne who's not in the industry and how they're going to take to it. Um, but I highly recommend it for a real, real-time trip. Now, the other side of the coin, rich man, poor man, we go to Ron Howard. Opie. We all love Opie. We all, good, all love a good opiate. When you talk about the raft of films that Ron Howard has directed, going back to 1977, Grand Theft Auto, Night Shift, Splash, Cocoon, Willow, Parenthood, Backdraft, The Paper, Apollo 13, Ransom, hugely overlooked film, amazing performance from Mel Gibson, A Beautiful Mind, on my top ten of all time, The Missing, The Da Vinci Code, Frost and Nixon, amazing, Rush, In the Heart of the Sea, Solo, A Star Wars Story, and now Hillbilly Elegy, a body of work that really is second to none, and he sometimes he hits, and sometimes he misses, but he always swings for the fences, and he goes for the schmaltz, he goes for the emotion. Hillbilly Elegy does not hit a home run, but performances from Glenn Close and Amy Adams, both Academy Award nominees and both Golden Globe winners for Best Actress in films, respectively, such as The Wife and American Hustle, 
put on amazing performances in the film. And we're going to go to Owen Gleiberman at Variety again for a real quick recant because he says that Amy Adams and Glenn Close act with down-home flamboyance in Ron Howard's otherwise overly safe adaptation. Realistically, the film reproduces the outline of J.D. Vance's memoir, but not the deep dive into Appalachia that makes it tick. It didn't start with her. That's the most penetrating quote said about Bev, played by Amy Adams, the frazzled maternal train wreck who makes everyone's life miserable in Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy. Bev is a parasite, an addict, a narcissist, and a desperate user of others, notably her own family. In a word, she's a mess. Her son, J.D., played by Gabriel Basso, attends Yale Law School and is in the middle of auditioning for a summer internship, but now he's got to go back to Middletown, Ohio, the Midwestern absolute toilet that he's from, and jump through hoops to get his mother into rehab. He foots the bill for a week-long stay on four credit cards, only to learn that mom has no interest in going to rehab. She's a former nurse who trashed her career when she roller skated high as a kite through the corridors of a hospital, shooting heroin, and seems to be going down fast. She doesn't want help. She'd rather stew in her toxic juice of rage and self-pity. But no, it didn't start with her. Does it ever. This film might be haunted by the demons of Appalachia, but it comes off as really a yuppie's life whose life is boiled down to, will those demons stand in the way of his career path? Not if he won't let them, they won't. It's not quite drama, it's feel-good therapy. And I really like the film. I um, I cry at um, Telstra ads. I try, cry at everything, as you know from previous podcasts. I'm a sucker for emotion, and Ron Howard pretty much hits the mark completely. Anyone who didn't cry at Cocoon is not human. And anyone who really didn't cry at the amazing last sentence said by Nikki Lauda in Rush, as he connects with Chris Hemsworth's driving foe, doesn't know how emotion can cut like a knife to even the toughest people. And this film, while quite flawed from a perfection standpoint, still really swung for the fences. And Glenn Close, as the grandmother, is astonishing. Um, Again, also uh, a movie, not a binge, just something to sit through and enjoy that two-hour escape to another world where you check your belief at the door. Enjoy both of these. Now, normally, I would be continuing with the Hollywood Con Queen episode four, but I got this amazing email today, which, because of time, I'm going to read in lieu of episode four, and we'll continue with episode four next week. And if you're not familiar with the trail on the trail of hunting the Hollywood Con Queen, and you thought it was fake, you better go back to the last three podcasts and please listen to those three. This was sent to Showcast. The Casting Guild of Australia has sent you a message. Warning, FBI scam warning and request for information. The following email has been sent to us by colleagues in the United States and has also been distributed 
by the CSA, Casting Guild of Casting Society of America. Please note, this information has been vetted by an investigator on the case. We are sharing with you the membership as a courtesy. CGA is not part of nor involved with the ongoing FBI investigation at this point. Throughout the last five years of a wide-ranging worldwide con, numerous well-known producers, directors, studio executives, and casting directors have been impersonated in an attempt to give legitimacy to an elaborate scam. You may or may not be familiar with it. Well, I've been talking about it for four podcasts, moron, and have thought it was ongoing. It is. Now, they're not morons, but uh, they should listen to the podcast. They don't need the FBI. This is an FBI case, but they want to know about any activity, even if it's been taking place outside the U.S., because actors and agents around the globe have been contacted by this con pretending to be well-known casting directors, directors and producers. The scam has been depicted in a recent podcast in the U.S., as well as many articles, links to some below. Well, 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 fantastic. The scam is known variously as the Indonesian scam or the showbiz scam or the Hollywood con queen scam. The podcast is called Chameleon. And Chameleon debuted, interestingly, two episodes after I started my tale, which was culled from articles in The Hollywood Reporter and Variety. Victims have been lured to travel to Indonesia or give money to a coach on Zoom, the pandemic version, or pressured to do lewd things on the phone in the interest of auditioning. We wanted to warn you about this and also to encourage you to report anything that may have happened in the past that has been brought to your attention by actors or their reps. The con uses fake email addresses, WhatsApp texts, and even phone calls impersonating particular known producers, directors, execs, and casting directors. All very elaborate again. You can see the articles below. Here is the link to report to the FBI investigation. Now, I'll put the links up on the site here because it's great. And it corroborates my, of course, sorry, self-praise is the lowest praise of all, but yes, my podcast, which has brought this to much of the world and um, was, of course, brought to me from the good folks at those aforementioned publications, which went under the radar to the general public so that I could bring it to you, the general public. So I'll be continuing with episode four of On the Hunt of the Con Queen next week. I'll also be talking about a great article, a really, really great article, which is about the death of Hollywood as we now know it with theaters closing across the country, bankruptcy, and warnings of what can or can't be resurrected over the next decade. It's not a death knell. It could be a phoenix rising, but it's an astonishing article. And um, I'll give my thoughts on that, on what's really going to happen in the next three to five years. Hint, make sure you've got a big-ass TV and sound system the biggest you can afford, in the biggest room you've got. But on that note, that's not free. But what is free? Well, one of the first things that Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden want to do 
if Mr. Biden does take office on January 20th, which he most likely will as president, sadly, but most likely will, is free shit because that is what the people that voted for them want. Free college, free university. And next week, we're going to be reporting on what a death knell that is for the average person and especially people that paid for it over the last 50 years. Now looking at people that are going to get it for free, but these same people that paid for it will be paying for it again with their taxes. Your taxes. You will be paying for everyone else to go to college and university even if you didn't, or your kids did, or didn't, or you paid for it. Because that's what's coming. That's the difference between socialism and communism, really. Socialism is everyone shares the wealth equally. Communism, everyone shares the poverty equally. So I think that's going to just about bring it to a close for this week. I hope you all survived Thanksgiving last week, whether you were Americans, expatriates or not, that big, big holiday. And by, by about now, all the zillions of people that traveled for Thanksgiving should be getting COVID tests, having a few sniffles, maybe some symptoms. We shall see. We shall see what happens this week in the U.S. And uh, I hope it's not as gravely horrific as scientists think it will, but Scientists told us there'd be no icebergs this week either. Just ask Al Gore. But one thing we should fear is we should fear China. China is not our friend, and China is here to take us out. So stay tuned for our, our hugely xenophobic anti-China, and not the people, of course, the government, um, episode next week. And uh, we'll also be talking about the run-up to the holidays, some unique holiday odds and ends. And I don't want to forget one thing that I'd forgotten in my little dream, my amazing lucid dream about working at Sportsman's. Um, I talked about the drawers, the photo drawers behind the counter because we did process film locally in Sioux City, but back then in the 60s, we had to send color processing away, often to Rochester, uh, Rochester, New York, or to a lab in Minnesota for the more elaborate color printing. Sioux City not being technologically able to do that at the time, although I could in my darkroom. But there was behind the till to the right, the drawer where the color film from overseas and out of state came in and people would give us their film and they'd write their name and address and, you know, We'd send it off, and it was the honor system, because if they never came in to pick up their prints, the company still got billed for all the color processing. But Sioux City was based on the honor system. It was a wonderful place to grow up. But um, one day, one day, lo and behold, I was asked to clean out the photo drawer and look at any photos that hadn't been picked up for at least 90 days and call those people and um, asked them to please come in and pick up their photos or we we're going to throw them out. Kind of like the dry cleaner. You leave your clothes at the dry cleaner, you don't pick it up. So, you know, calling, 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 and, you know, you they go, geez, I don't remember that. Um, 
what what was that? And you op- could you look and you open the photo and go, yeah, it looks like vacation photos. Looks like you're at Lake Okaboji. There's some water skiing, um, and they go, oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about those. I'll be down. I'll be down to pick those up. Thanks so much. Well, one day, one day, I got through an unnamed but well-known family and called them up. Well-known family name in Sioux City and said, um, I got some photos here and um, they've been here for like six months and like you to come pick them up. And the uh, lady on the phone, I will never forget this, probably the mother, um, maybe the grandmother, wouldn't know, wouldn't know. What was I, just but a kid, said, well, I'm not sure what they are. My husband might have dropped them off, whatever. Could you have a look at them? And of course, we never looked at anybody's photos without permission. So broke the seal and opened it up. And um, that was my first exposure, pun intended, to multiple groups of naked people and um, together in the same house. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't a nudist colony, I don't think. It was a bit more athletic and uh, <laughs> a bit more c- close encounters of the third kind. And um, I don't think it was a costume ball either. So, wow, I was hard for me to describe that over the phone. And there was a long pause. And then the phone went dead. Now, I didn't call back. I just put the photos back in the drawer. And um, they still burn holes in my eyeballs from time to time, even though I haven't thought of them for a long time. I don't know if they ever got picked up. But that was another learning experience that I had. And that's what memories are made of. I hope you have a fantastic week. I hope you have a fantastic week. I hope you'll make the world safer and better by boycotting products from communist China. And uh, I hope you'll avoid reading the New York Times and only using it if you have purchased it for paper training your pets. Um, Horrific anti-American, anti-Israel rag. And um, I hope you'll go above and beyond the call of duty in whatever you do. A couple of people that did that this week, uh, the amazing Lauren at Chanel Boutique in Melbourne and Steph at Zimmerman in Armadale, who just really are amazing professionals. And that's what makes the world go around. People that do their best and love what they do. I love what I do. And I love talking to you people every week. You people. So please subscribe. Check out the show notes. The show notes are the newsletter that comes free every week. If you subscribe with all kinds of goodies and links and photos and uh, not the photos that I found in the drawer at Sportsman's that weren't picked up in 1967, but pretty much everything else. Love your work. God bless. Please catch up on previous podcasts and you will be a smart person. I promise. Check out the big brain on bread. You're a smart motherfucker. That's right.